This is the Nomad Futurist Podcast, a podcast about the evolution of technology, society, and transformation. Connect with us, share your thoughts with us at nomadfuturist.com. Let's get this started. Here are Phil and Nabil. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Nomad Futurist. This is your co-host Nabil Mahmood from Kona, Hawaii. This is your co-host Phil Koblenz from Montclair, New Jersey. This is Sarah Keller from Fidago Island, Washington. Where is Fidago Island, Sarah? It's between Seattle and Vancouver, right on the San Juans. Well, that's the place to be. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. Let's start to get to know you a little bit more. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm Sarah Keller. I manage our technology sourcing and supply chain team at Uber. I've not necessarily been in this space my whole career. I actually started off in, as a TPM doing standards work back in the day. So I, I, I would say this is a, it's been a happy coincidence that I landed here, though you might argue right now with supply chain being where it is. I don't know. Um, I feel like I'm like more like the uh, night's watch sitting on the, the wrong side of the wall, so to speak. <laughs> what you do for a living as a technical sourcing and supply chain director at Uber, what is your task on a daily basis? Yeah, we manage all of our infrastructure, IT, third-party spend. So, you know, right now, obviously, Uber's made massive investments in how we go out to market. We have a, a ton around IoT and our mobility. So, and I would I would say that, you know, some of this is your traditional IT infrastructure kind of stack. Some of those are just getting into really kind of cool emerging technologies. And we did a lot around our autonomous. We did a lot around AI and machine learning. Etc. So we have this combination of your standard, you know, kind of feed and seed, making sure servers are there to catch, um, you know, the rides. But then we also have quite a bit that we're doing in big build bets on how to make our product more efficient and, and really drive better results overall. So my team is responsible for the full third party spend lifecycle, whether that's, you know, the acquisition whether that's the management afterwards, you know, price performance to actual KPI performance, et cetera, we get pretty deep into the trenches. So I, I, I get that. And we're going to get into supply chain at some point in time in this conversation. However, one of the points that you made earlier that you probably got into this industry purely by accident. Could you share your journey, a little bit of the trial and tribulation as to what was it like and how did you get about uh, to what you're doing today? Yeah, happy to. So not to cut way, way back, but, you know, I started off, you know, in the very early days of online banking, when there was nothing really online, almost everything on the banking side was was very hard coded. And it's when online meant actually being on a line. That's absolutely right. You know, modems, you know, screaming at you the whole time, really bad interfaces, poor customer service, that kind of thing. But I, I actually defaulted into uh, project management and in that process ended up at a very small, very cool boutique standards company that was responsible for building up market associations. So those are technology standards. They would submit to the IEEE, ITU. They would actually be the baseline for either consumer or um, enterprise products that were two to five years out in many cases from development. So I'm really happy, like, saw the early, early stages of like how Wi-Fi works in the car, how Bluetooth came together, managed the SD card association, 
But a lot of the part where I got really excited was actually working on data center standards. So I learned the data centers more from the software stack, how to deal with configuration management, security, networking standards, et cetera, before there were really any kinds of standards. That led into a role like building out a kind of project management group for them on their enterprise IT that fed into a deep relationship with the vendor management office there at Google. And one of my mentors had taken a role to build up the supply chain at Facebook and said, well, I think you'd be great in this role. And I was like, well, why? This doesn't make any sense. Like, I, I don't know nothing about no negotiating. Like, I'm sure there are probably... I mean, nothing about no negotiating. Right. Like, I, I'm sure there's probably far better qualified people for you to bring on. And her, her response at the time was, I need somebody to manage really difficult engineers. You do well at that. So let's start there and I'll teach you the rest of it. So I've been in the supply chain focused world, working at Facebook, Workday, and now at Uber for since 2009. And so that's that would be that transition that I took moving into this side of the house. But I think it's all collaboratively, kind of once you understand how the stack works, how you understand how the technology works, understanding how to deal with the commercials behind it and the management of it. I'm not saying it's easy, but I would actually say it's it kind of folds in together pretty nicely from a kind of a collaborative overall stack. I think that's the thing that's so surprising uh, for people. It's like people think about our world as a world built around like people that just are super uh, computer focused and like scientists and white coats and the, uh, they love circuitry and motherboards and all that stuff. When in reality, it's really driven by people that have the right type of personality. Like you have the ability to coordinate and that in and of itself is enough for you to really find yourself at the cutting edge of, of, of what's making, you know, our technological world move forward. Do you think that there's a, a particular characteristic that, that you have that, that, you know, made you the right person for that, that type of, you know, curiosity. I, I would say when I was working the standards, I never defaulted into, well, you know, let these guys talk about, in many cases, technology didn't even exist, right? They're talking about building a standard for something that was non-existing. And so being a non-engineer and heavy engineering discussions early on, because that was early on, that was my job was to make sure that these collaborative engineers actually delivered so that we could hit our IEEE deadline for submissions. And so you had to back into it. Well, it started off, you know, almost Latin, but then as you're understanding and then doing research and understanding kind of broader technology trends and some of these aspects, you start finding that you're picking not only the pieces together, but you're seeing the holes because the engineers were, were focused in using very myopic ways. And so there's this nice collaborative approach to kind of even how you guys described this, you know, Sometimes that that good is better than perfect kind of mentality. That's a good thing that TPMs bring, but it's also about, are we solving the right critical problems? Because if we're not solving the problem, why are we here? And even in my current role, I find myself like, we don't buy for the sake of buying. We're solving a real problem. We're finding a real opportunity. We're looking for value. How to measure value comes in different forms and fashions. And sometimes it's about how creative, not creative, but how do you understand that complex problem and how do you define it? And then how are you solving for it? See, I so, heard a little bit, I heard a little bit of an aboot 
So I think you're close <laughs> enough to Vancouver that some of the Canadian be. comes out. Might be. The Canadian comedy I love. <laughs> <laughs> what did you want to be when you grew up as a child? You know, it's funny. I had no clue. I, I was a business major because my, my instinct said if someone was going to pay me, whether I was an artist or I was a teacher or I was, you know, whatever it was, if it revolves around money in some form coming into my hands, understanding the nature of business was critical to kind of being successful. So I defaulted to, you know, well, I don't know what else I want to do, but this feels comfortable enough. And it was really intuitive. It was like kind of official water. And I wouldn't say, I think following flow, you know, you asked like, what was a characteristic? I would actually say be open to following a flow because I could have easily turned down that Facebook opportunity and said, no, 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 no. I'm in a great job right now. I'm at Google, I've been doing TPM work. This is who I am. And I define myself by this. I open myself up to that opportunity of following kind of an interest stream rather than following a career path. And I do think that that made a huge difference, not only in my actual success in my career, but also in like my happiness level, because I never got indexed on, well, I never got that raise or I never got that role. I never this wasn't like a thing that I had like a pre-planned destiny. I'm going to be a CTO by 29, right? So I guess, I don't know if that gives you a good answer. And no, I think, like, I think it's great. And I think, I think what's amazing about it is it's in the term, this is, you can almost tell you're a project manager, right? Because it's, a, it's, not, it's not a traditionally, you know, kind of, you know, scientific approach. It's just this idea of, you know, in, in, in a term that I think a lot of our listeners, our target audience is younger people that are trying to find their way in the world and trying to find something in our guests that, that, they, that resonates with them. And I think this notion of, you know, just focus, it's so Ubery, right? It's like the gigi economy thing. You are the product that you're selling. It's not, you're not defined by the organization. So if you think about it in terms of you just finding, you know, who the best customer is for your services, then it doesn't really matter if you stay in the same. And you look at your resume, you look at your LinkedIn, it's a who's who, Google, Facebook. If you told the teenage version of yourself that you were going to be at Google and Facebook and Uber, you probably wouldn't have known what Uber was at the time, but it's just, it's, it's an incredible who's who. And a lot of that is uh, because you trusted yourself to be the product that you're selling. Yeah. I would, I would hundred percent, I take the compliment, but I would agree with you. It was, I, I have friends, people that are colleagues that, you know, are very caught in these traps and these traps don't bring happiness. Like they, they truly get into this. I have to be, you know, I need to level up in my career every two to three years. I've taken roles that were steps down. Like when I left uh, the standards company, I was an executive director to be basically the head of a PMO. Okay, like logically you would look at that and you say, but that doesn't make, like title wise, what are you doing? Right now, Google, obviously title, like that that makes sense to a lot of people and people do one, take- One with a hundred zeros, how do you know right. that? But, but I would also say people understand like, you know, you take a step down sometimes for a title in a company or titles change would go down based off of the brand of what you're doing. But even like leaving Google to Facebook, you know, I, I left Google. I had a pretty massive org. It was over 400 people reporting to me. When I went to Facebook, it was me by myself. There was no direct reports. And I was, and I was like, good, 
I want to learn this space. I don't want to be involved. Like, I don't want to be responsible for other you, people's like you're, focused, you're, you're focused on enrichment, enriching yourselves. That was it. Love it. So, yes, I, I do think, I think that's the right answer. And people, I'm sure there are people who follow the plan and are very happy. I just know that my personality was never that person. Barrett Keller. Is- <laughs> Have you ever wondered, like, if you were not doing what you're doing today, was there anything else that you would probably be considering or doing? I actually was training for opera. I I wanted to be an opera singer. And and I think if it, it was funny because it's like, you know, sometimes it's the jobs you don't get that you kind of appreciate. Like I had done a full audition. I was, you know, they were interested, but I was too young. There's a there's a thing around opera where you can damage young voices. And I was 19, kind of applying for a role within Arizona State Opera Company. Wow. And they were happy with, like, it wasn't like, hey, it's not that you're like, they're like, keep on practicing. Well, by the time... That like I was at an age where they would have fully taken me out of like, and they would have, they do have an opera, like children's roles, but like, I wasn't a child anymore. I was like applying for, you know, kind of the big person job. And at that point it was, no, you come back in a few years. Well, I ended up like working on the technology side and I kind of fell in love with it. Like it wasn't even intentional. It was an accidental thing. But I, I ended up loving that work. And I can tell I can tell why you're so good at yelling at engineers. I can only imagine. Yeah, uh, it's about breath control. You gotta take it kind of go. Well, give us one note. Give us one note. I don't know if it'll come through in the recording. Something. Figure up. Anyway. Oh, I don't know. I'm so out of. Can I do it? No, it <laughs> Sarah Keller's opera debut on the Nomad Futures podcast. You never knew where this was gonna go, right? <laughs> Very good. So. With all the craziness that we've actually encountered over the last two years, and there's a continuation of it right now as well, you had briefly mentioned about the supply chain issue. How is that affecting you in your current capacity? And, you know, where, where do you see and how far along do you see we're going to be able to get to some point that it's going to normalize? Ask, yeah, train 100 supply chain people in the room, ask 100 people the same question, and they're all going to give you a whole lot of it depends. And I think, you know, there's, there's, there's some good things that I think, to be honest with you, we had been shifted so heavily into just in time to like very dangerous degrees of instability. I think people are rethinking how those things, are. like COVID blew apart that. But I also think that the kind of ground tensions right now, you know, I, I just had to finish writing a paper about the potential impact of what happens if, you know, China takes a clue from Russia and goes after Taiwan in a real way? That's a real risk. But when 92% of the world's... Because it's going so well for Russia, right? China would want to want, want to... Right. But like when 92% of the world's like interconnected, like the, the circuitry that is required for in how we live. And that's not just the servers. That's our phones. That's our, you know our smart TVs and our smart refrigerators and our smart cars and all of the devices can come out of one region, but it happens to be on a beach facing China. And and China's been getting more and more aggressive. And so this becomes this incredibly interesting problem statement, like cars being rolled off the lots today without, you know, interconnected circuits. Hey, I'm going to allow for those ICs to be plugged in afterwards, but you have no power controls in the back anymore, right? We're giving you the bare minimum. 
the industry is having to adapt. I think as consumers, we're going to start seeing choices. Hey, do you really need all the smart metering in a data center? Do you really need how you do things today to be the same as they were three years ago? Because I don't think that it's sustainable, frankly, that the, the way that things are built. Now, obviously, there are big, massive global implications here. There's security implications. There's a lot of countries that are doing a lot of work right now to try to break apart the supply chain and make it a bit more stable. But right now, like the entire world is kind of standing. If you, if you need an integrated circuit, you're standing on one or two companies. Is, is this an opportunity for us to actually bring all of that back into America? There is. But, but the problem is, is foundries are incredibly intensive. You have not only an effort in like the manufacturing cycle to build up like kind of a wafer fa- like foundry. You also have a knowledge gap. We in this country have tools. We know how to do the raw materials, but we don't actually understand what it means to to build up wafer, what it means to build up chip in a true sense. So that has to be all educated, but there has already an effort. In fact, TMSC has uh, made investment in Phoenix, Arizona. They're building up their first major manufacturing center outside of Taiwan but you won't see capacity coming online before 2024. So if China were to get a little aggressive right now, what does that mean for our supply chain? Well, costs are going to go up. Parts are going to be out. You're going to see more kind of trade-offs where people are going to see elongated cycles. Like there's a ton around like 5G making the world better. Well, if you can't build up the towers because there is no chips to make the 5G interconnections work, well, all of those promises of like how IoT works, et cetera, you could just blow those out because frankly, it's all going to kind of be on this like house of cards. And unfortunately, it's on pretty unstable ground when you look at the geopolitical threat. Let me just say, the, I, I think what's what's interesting is, you know, there, there are only, again, one of our goals here is to demystify the world of technology, right? And I think there's, a, there, there's an obvious, like people understand gas, because everybody uses gas, you know, other than, you know, the Tesla people, but they know what gas is. So it's just so ingrained in the psyche that we should achieve energy independence because we know that we rely on these foreign places, you know, for things like oil that, you know, goes into the gas tank. But I think what's less appreciated by the majority of the population is, you know, how interdependent we are globally on from a technology standpoint and how there was never that capability really like when manufacturing left the US you know we're talking about like steel and you know buggy whips and and that sort of thing there was never a time that we were manufacturing that stuff in in any meaningful way in the US because we had a you know by the time that became prevalent you know we were already achieving this global interdependence so i think it's a it's a brilliant point that you know we don't necessarily have even the infrastructure to harken back to to be able to to achieve some sort of like technology independence, not just in terms of you know thinking of new technologies and 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 you know creating the technologies of tomorrow, but actually facilitating them through you know manufacturing. Yeah, we are in a better position. Sorry, I would say before people start getting gloom and doom, we are in a better position, let's say, than most of the world. Because a lot of the technology, know-how, like you've got the intels of the world, et cetera, like a lot of the technology does come from here. And some of the, the robotics that are used to build kind of the wafer 
come from the U.S. A lot of raw materials come from the U.S. So when you start to factor those in, it's actually about the knowledge worker and how making that investment in time in, in resourcing and training and bringing resources over from Thailand, or not Thailand, but Taiwan mm-hmm. over to train and to bring this fab up. It's going to be pretty critical. I also think like, believe it or not, like Texas Instruments, you know, before the supply chain, if you'd asked me how deep did I know about Texas Instruments, I would have hearkened back to my like old scientific calculators, right? Not realizing how interconnected they are still in board assemblies, et cetera. Like there's, they were such small parts that when you were looking at a constant bomb, you would, you get flushed into the other category. Well, they make circuits, right? They make they make the silicon that needs to happen for, you know, even with, you know, when we think of big industry leaders like Broadcom, et cetera, Intel, they don't manufacture their own chips. Mm-hmm. They don't they don't actually do this work themselves. So it, I do think you'll see a lot of companies bring this back. I do think the U.S. is actually better positioned. But I would say right now, geopolitically, like things are a little bit dicey. And so when you say like, when is recovery? How do we see it? All of the industry analysts say, well, if, but every, if everything holds to where it is right now, we should be out of this hole by kind of the end of next year. But as super dependent on current demand signals, current like environments, nothing goes wrong. And we're already seeing things go wrong. Like, you know, COVID is cha- like changing manufacturing again. Right. So anyway, like it's a, it's a very interesting time, I think, to be in this space because it, it is an incredibly complicated problem. But as political, it's, you know, it, it is like how the, like these supply chains are interconnected, but also like how much was relying on very, very few uh, numbers of companies and locations in the world, which were always low cost in many ways but never more like absolutely essential to how we live. Yeah. So over the last two years, there's been this uh, great movement from work from home or technology adoption. But based on what I'm hearing is that at least for the next 12 to 24 months, we're going to have a little bit of a screeching halt with supply chain issues. Uh, Essentially, you're going to see lots of starts and stops. And again, it's it's all very much interconnected with how the world is, is doing, right? These things don't are not isolated. Yeah. So just to add to that, does that mean that the 5G rollouts, the IoT rollouts, the, you know, the self-driving autonomous vehicle rollout, the smart cities, is that going to be pushed out uh, a few more years? Could be. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't people that don't have their towers already upgraded or material already on hand, et cetera. I just think you're going to start seeing slowdown of schedules or you're going to start seeing defaulting misses on project plans on like timing of things they're going to already today the global supply chain is like the number one use of of reasons for problems in companies particularly if you make a lot sarah yeah i know personally i'm gonna take it but you know i'll just say i'm a consumer more than i'm a you know, a developer of the product itself. <laughs> and, and so I'm yelling at supply chain people who are like, yeah, I'm, I'm talking to companies and they're telling us, go ahead and sue me because right. I don't have them. <laughs> so like, oh. you know, like this whole thing will definitely result in people's timelines getting shifted. And, and I think, look, at some point that a chain is only as strong as its weakest link, right? So if you have a smart city or 5G rollout in one place, but it's not rolled out everywhere, 
Are you really getting on- full benefit, right? Who cares yeah. if it's- And it's waiting on a, a $10, you know, like, <laughs> right? Like, that's quite literally what's happening. You've got cars that aren't rolling out because they don't they don't have like five ten dollar parts. Exactly. Ford, Ford is actually a great example. This week they re- they said that they were going to release all the Explorers and F one fifties without the chips, and they're going to be field upgradable. Which is why Mafia people have lined up because they ripped the GPS out of those cars day one. I learned that by watching the Fratus. <laughs> On a positive note, no people do know what supply chain is. I mean, it was kind of like you know three years ago nobody knew what we did for a living. We were the 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 Oz behind the curtains. And there you have it on a positive note. And people, think people still, do you think people actually know what it is? I think people hear the name and they're like, everything's expensive because supply chain. Do you think they actually know what they're talking? I, I don't know. Well, I hope you so. Know? I'm not suggesting that, that people are stupid, but people are pretty stupid. But I think you bring up a good point. Like, do people really understand what it is in supply chain? Like, I think people see that, you know, there's logistics issues, like, ports they think it's like well if we just cheat just put more people in the port you get more <laughs> product in, and then it's gone supply chain problem fixed so it i do think we we see some of that where you've got these oversimplification or intentional oversimplification of fairly complicated problems and can you have that conversation with your executive team saying hey i want to tell you it's all going to be golden but like, let me give you like the places where we can do something. And and the other part of this is also making investments. Like one of the things I've seen on the data center side, specifically on the provider side, companies that like actually bought equipment and held it are the ones now that are growing. The people who are waiting for their stuff are on the back of the bus with everyone else. They're not able. So the number of sales leaders I talk to that have a kind of an addressable book of business that they're leaving on the table comparative to what they can deliver. I would tell you more companies are in that case where there's more demand than they actually have supply to support. And so it does become a, yes, you're right. Like this is, it's a great time to be a supply chain person because everybody's interested in supply. It is a terrible time to be a supply chain person because everybody thinks that they could do it better or how. At some time, at some point your hands are tied, right? It's a, if it's an issue, it's an issue. There's only so many phone calls you can make. So many people you can, you can, you know, beat and say, well, you should give me the authority or just give me the preference. Right. You know, that's, that's where even like my comment was, you know, this is coming from pretty senior companies where like, you know, uh, you would be surprised at that relationship that a CEO is being told, go ahead, sue me. I'm not giving you parts. Right. I have no obligation to give you parts. I know we have a contract, but I'm not, I don't have a, I don't have anything to give you. So you know, I'll see. And, and how much of that, how much of that is going to be permanent? You know, I think one of the things that I've noticed just from my personal life, forgetting about, you know, the, the data center industry and all that, because it touches every element of our lives, you know, from construction to, to buying a car and, and, and all that. And, you know, I think, you know, clearly there's a supply and demand issue and you, you know, people look at the supply chain and like, well, that is the inflationary vehicle that's causing all the prices to rise. And then you look at certain subsections, like for example, the price of oil, uh, it went down significantly, but the cost of gas somehow didn't go down as quickly as it went up. Um, well, you know, the, they, like lumber, lumber went went all the way up, and people were like freaking out because plywood was super expensive, and then lumber, you know, went all the way down, and it's still pretty damn expensive. You know, it doesn't, it didn't really like. Obviously, if they determine that people are willing to pay these high high rates, you know, prices are not going to come down at the same rate that that you know supply chain 
fixes might suggest they would. Yeah, well, that, yeah. what, you know what they say in DC is like, what goes up doesn't come down, like over taxes. <laughs> That's right. And in fact, even there's that idea, you know, I was, I was something around like healthcare where they were talking about these massive increases that were happening on the pharmaceutical side where pharmaceutical companies were intentionally taking life-saving drugs and marking them up 600, 800,000. I'm looking at you, pharma bro. That's right. And and these these stories that come out about it, because because one of the aspects of this that's critical to understand is that will people pay for that? And if it's a choice between your life or death, you're going to find a way to make that 600 percent thing work and you're going to find a way to get that medicine. in. I actually think right now supply chain is exactly the same where people who are, let's call it running on the edge or even people who are like assuming cloud vendors aren't going to raise their pricing. You know, most people are on a floating like cost structure on cloud that has a very risk of changing if the cloud vendors decide I'm going to take advantage of let's call it some of this market pricing. Their prices may not have changed, but they could use the the noise of this to raise their price list. And people will will do it because it's core to their business. How do I deliver my product? If and I don't have my Amazon infrastructure, right? And especially if if it's like if it's something like Amazon or Google, where you become tied to their API, you know, how do you move that? And what is the cost associated with moving that? Which uh, again makes the case for Colo. We're back to the data better. Thank goodness. Eat it, cloud. <laughs> Maybe it's a time for us to become minimalist and just buy what we need. Oh yeah, spoken like someone on the beaches of Kona. Yes, it's very easy to be minimalist when you can walk outside with your little fleece or whatever and not have a care in the world. Come to Jersey. Yeah, I might have to visit you, Phil. You need to mag. You need to be maximalist in Jersey. <laughs> so you you are in the data center space and you're in technology. Being a woman, how has that experience been for you uh, since you've actually been a part of uh, the largest, smallest? industry? You know, what I tell you is it's changed a lot, you know, from where I was early in my career. Now, obviously, I think some of this is also maturity, knowing what you'll put up with, knowing how to kind of represent yourself. You know, when you're early in your career, it's harder, I think, to know where, like how to how to be likable and and how to kind of deal with it. I think culturally, we have created more safety nets that didn't exist. Like when my career started, it was like, you're just going to suck it up and figure out a way around it. And you're going to deal with those toxic male personalities and and you just try to avoid them or, you know, insulate or have someone around you. Like there's, there's things you have to do to, I hate to say protect yourself, but that's kind of what happens. I would say, you know, I, I would not be truthful if I didn't say that there wasn't some impact to my career. Like if I had a gender neutral name and like, you know, we're representing some of the work in a male perspective. Do I think that I would be paid more? Possibly. I also think there is a real thing around like reputational credibility, right? Where I have to work sometimes twice as hard as maybe some of my male colleagues do to to be able to to represent the same content and data. Those are truths. Like I, I don't, those are my truths. I wouldn't necessarily say they're everybody's truths, but I would say in technology specifically working for technology companies, I wouldn't say it's unique to any one company. I think these are kind of like how cultures of of engineers and how we've like built up tech. And I even think what was successful and what wasn't successful. I've seen more a hostility, frankly, between women than I have between men and women in the workplace. And I think part of it is that 
well, there's only so many spots at the table. And so I'm going to come up on it. So like, I don't know, it's, it's a difficult conversation because there are so many implications across multiple lines. I would just say I'm on the other side of it. And I, I now look at this as a great opportunity for mentorship. You know, some of the places where I didn't feel like I had that mentor, you know, I intentionally go out of my way to to mentor. And I work with young girls that are coming out of college, interns, people who are early in their career. So for me, I, I intentionally give back, not because I want to say, hey, avoid that creepy guy in the conference room. But it's more in that allowing yourself to feel really like strong and and know that you have value, have a seat at the table, have a voice, be inclusive. And I think when you start to emulate that behavior, it, it enables the culture for both men and women and, and other minorities that are underrepresented to also kind of have that same perspective. So as a leader, I can set the tone. And I think that that's a huge benefit of being now at this place in my career comparative to like early on when I was like adapting to the tone of where I was living or working at the time. So I don't know if that answered the question, but like, no, look, I think it's, it's a really again, complicated thing. No question. And I think it's, it's, it, and, and it's not just in technology. Technology is exacerbated a bit, obviously, because there are so few women specifically represented in, in technology traditionally. But I think, you know, what you're doing is the perfect thing. Like the best way to, to, you know, I don't think there's a solution to the problem, right? It's, it's kind of societal, structural to a certain extent, but I think shining the light, light on it is the only way to really, you know, get through it. And what you're doing is incredible, like seeking out these, they, you know, being a mentor and all that. And I wonder if it's incumbent upon, you know, companies to, to try to encourage that type of mentorship, not just within their own organizations, but, you know, through the industry. Is there a way for us to, you don't want to force people into doing something they're not comfortable with, but how as, as a company, what changes could be made structurally with, 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 you know, each of these companies and, and with the industry at large, and even with standards bodies, with a, a world that, that you worked in to, to try to, you know, remove that, you know, those, those structural issues. Yeah. I think because there's so much around this, around that, that's, that's most like it's both generational and cultural, right? Because you brought up the standards. When I was working and the consumer electronics, I was working with heavy Asian manufacturing companies and there's a very different cultural standard. People understand this, right? There's a, there's a cultural standard, but there's a place as a woman where you have to adapt in that cultural standard to be successful. I think ultimately how companies, how you can change, how you can do this. One, I, I'm a big proponent of my network, but then I, you know, I also do participate in like official mentoring programs. So one of the cool things that Uber did was they actually built up a mentoring program where people could volunteer as well as request. They have kind of like, I hate to call it like a dating matching kind of thing, but you're like, hey, here are the problems I have. And someone who feels that they're really strong in certain areas. So your mentors can come in different forms and fashions. And I think for me, like that has been really cool adoption of like technology to creating like a real matching service. Could we as an industry have a bit more broader way of this besides like LinkedIn? I think so. I actually believe so. And again, there's there's official like, you know, working with those girls that are, you know, coming out of college, et cetera. You know, there there are specific kind of technology initiatives around, you know, young female mentorship that you can participate in. 
But I, I still believe there's a huge amount of value of just talking to people in your lives. Like if you have girls and kids or, you know, people that you're working with individually, understanding where they're at, understanding where they're meant, meant their, their heads are at, because their technology knowledge is growing. They are coming from a completely different generational space than where I was when I started off. But there was like some really similar like social kind of issues. Well, you you may not be able to help them with like some of the tech pieces of it, but for sure, I think the, you know, the how they get things done and how to work with people and how to bring influence and how to feel confident in themselves. Those are those are translatable skills. And those skills can occur, you know, with your five-year-old daughter just as easily as a 25-year-old like coming out of college and is is starting that career. Well, is there, a way to fix the, is there a way to fix the creeps? Like, it seems like we're like, it seems like a lot of the effort is spent, like, like trying to get the girls to recognize that this is a problem that's going to, that's going to, like, can we, can the good guys, am I a good guy? I don't know if I'm a good guy or not. It can, can, can we like stop the creeps from being creepy? How do we oh, stop the creeps from being creepy? The creeps are going to be creepy. I think. Can we, uh, like, would we shove them out? Can we make like, can, is there a way to make it so you can't be hired if you're a dickhead? I mean, is there, is there, isn't there a possible there's there's all kinds of cultural like like Google, Facebook, Uber. We all have different cultural ways of finding the brilliant jerks and trying to keep them out. And you've you've got people who are really good at hiding how jerky they are or not. You know, how do you feel? There's got to be a way. We, that's what we need to free fight on display in the interview process. HR. We need to figure out how in HR like to follow some like to make it like uh, it's like an undercover boss, but it has to be like an undercover like HR interview where the person thinks they're going on a date. But it's actually like the person that's going to, you know, determine whether they're going to get that job that they applied for. And then they're like, oh, no, you just try to like order their dinner without Let, knowing what they wanted. We, we can just call Elon and have them all shipped over to Mars on his next. Yeah, there you go. We'll put, we'll put them on an island and, and it'll be a surprise. I think Elon would be really good at picking them out. I think Elon would buy. <laughs> well, actually, if, if I could say one thing, I please. would say after that we didn't let her speak i'm sorry go ahead well i do actually do a lot of reference checks um, i i wish i could say i had more women that worked for me and my unfortunately my my distribution ain't great right but, like many people i hire engineers who understand the problem statement to understand the commercials etc so many of the people on my team actually come more from an engineering discipline than a procurement background and i don't have great representation necessarily if you looked across my broader team that being said I'm a huge proponent of the reference check that you don't ask. Like, you're going to give me the reference names of three people. I'm going to go and talk to the people who you didn't give me. Because I think because we're in an interconnected industry, you can find out who people really are. And you can find out how they've treated other people. And so I do intentionally go through my leadership team, particularly saying, I don't want people like this. And so I will actually take a very good, highly qualified candidate that's been fully approved and I'll deny them on a culture thing oh, based yeah. off of Not the reputation of Sarah Keller, creepy killer. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that's a great point. You know, watch out when you post on social media, especially yeah. Facebook. Yeah. And I'll figure out, you know, that then they, you know, a lot of these people, they try to put, you know, different names, like pseudonyms, like they'll cut off the blend of their last name. We're on to you guys. We know that you're just cutting off the men or the, or the ski or whatever. I had a brilliant jerk that had applied for a role under four unique names. Uh, so I know exactly uh, what you thought. Yeah. 
All right. Well, I think, uh, you know, that brilliant jerk. Let's get that brilliant jerk out. We actually have him in the green room. Brilliant jerk. Oh, no, he's not here. Okay. Well, let's sum that up with, uh, if you want to change the world, the best way to do those, uh, or the simplest way to do so is to be the change yourself. So Sarah, thank you for taking the initiative and going out and about and doing it differently than the conventional HR way of hiring. Throughout your career, and it's been very successful, you know, where I want to take the next part of the conversation is, what do you think is that core strength that you've developed to get to where you're at today? Adaptability. I think is is a huge skill. I think we get really fixed. We get in fixed mindsets. We get into fixed functional thoughts. We even get into fixed ideas of how technology is supposed to work. You know, some of the biggest breakthroughs came from, you know, suggesting alternatives that were, let's call it, not the sticker usage of how technology should work and saying, well, couldn't we consider doing X? And, and even like with engineers who like, they'll be like shock moment of like, absolutely, we could consider something different. So I think, I think understanding that, that really the only limitation is how like you were probably like solving the problem, even this whole supply chain conversation we had earlier, I actually am not satisfied with like the answers. I'm, I keep looking for different angles and different ways. So I think that's, that would be the skill. The skill is looking, adapting, being curious being open, being open to being wrong and be adapting quickly. Because if you, if you fail quickly, you're always going to succeed versus someone who's going to, let's say, go down with that ship of based off of ego or, you know, I don't, I don't want to be perceived to be weak or wrong. I, I got no, I got Double down, triple down. Oh yeah. I think I'm in my game. I'll be wrong in a minute, but if I'm right in the long term, that's, that's all I'm looking for. Well, as long as you acknowledge that you were wrong, right? That's right. Yeah. So knowing what you know today about yourself, what would you do differently, if anything? Oh, that's a hard question. I don't, I think I'm really happy with my path and where I'm at. I, I do think I would have brought meditation in personally, like a lot earlier in my career. I think it would have saved me a lot of heartache and stress if I had been able to adapt my mind and how to kind of deal with stress and how to deal with work and how to, like, that is something I would say, I wouldn't call it a secret weapon, but I would say like, if you're very centered and you're very connected to who you are, meditation is a clean way of getting there. I'm not saying it's the only way, but it is, it is a clean way of getting there. I think earlier on you, it's harder and you put a lot more wear and tear on your body and on your relationships and how you think about the world, you know, how you change jobs. Like there's a lot of people, I, I was just having this conversation with someone. I was like, if you think leaving a bad situation to go to a different company, doesn't mean you're not going to encounter the same exact bad situation. Maybe not at that company, but you will. You will continuously encounter this until you adapt. And so I think that would be the one thing I'd bring it back much, much, much earlier because then I would have saved myself a whole lot of pain. And part, part of the problem, part of the problem there, if it, if it, if there is such a thing is, is perspective, right? The reason you know about, you know, that, that need is because you have the lived experience to be able to do it. So at some point, you know, you can, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't teach it to drink, or you can try to protect your kids from making the same mistakes that you made, but they'll continue to make them or even want to make them because you're trying to dissuade them from making them because that's the only way you learn not to touch a hot stove is you got to touch the damn stove, right? So, you know, yeah, I think that, you have to go on to the other side of it. Like you kind of have to, I think we resistant to, to like, you know, 
people are resistant to bad feedback. People are resistant to like, you know, what they think is failure experiences. Actually, some of the best lessons come from those failure experiences. We've got a major gap as it entails to the generation coming into the technology space. We've got a generational gap, the technology divide as, as we see today. What message would you have for the younger generation to help us bridge this gap and find the leaders for tomorrow? We have been seeing some adaption of conversations around how to be in tech, what it means to be in tech, the types of roles in tech. I also think that there's more people that talk about it than do anything about it. And I, I feel like this is one of those, like you go into the circuits, everyone talks about it, but nobody is actually implementing localized solutions. And so I think, you know, the conference we were talking at, one of the concepts that I had brought is, you know, if you want more people in your, your industry, what are you doing to talk to people outside of your industry? Like, truthfully, you can go to many of the schools, high schools do still have college fairs, but they also have career days. Still, people still actually are looking for guidance on, you know, how like, in fact, working in kind of with college interns, et cetera, you can start to bring people in. There's also like, if you didn't want to go down that route, there are many um, initiatives that are actually working with, you know, at-risk youth or people that are, you know, coming from from more diverse kind of environments that are actually getting some really baseline training and they're trying to find jobs for these people in companies, right? I actually think if you want to be the change, so this is me now speaking to not the person who's in their early 20s starting the career, but more in that 40 to so plus person who's a hiring manager, et cetera, why don't you start looking at what your hiring practice is? Are you following the same path because your HR team told you that's what you needed to do? Are you considering alternatives? I actually think if every one of us just started making slight shifts in our hiring practice, in our in community engagement, we would see a massive change in the amount of people who knew what we did, understand that this is actually a really viable career path, and you'd start seeing more diversity and more incoming talent. I landed in data center as a default coming out of the standards worlds because I was like, that's really cool stuff. I liked working with Green Grid. I liked working with like how like these things work together, but I would never have known how data centers actually worked before that moment. I had no clue. So I don't think that most people understand how our infrastructure works, how our technology works, what is really the background behind it. People understand coding. And a lot of people say, but I'm not a coder. But there's a lot of roles we have that aren't that. And so I, I think we need to change our narratives and change has to happen with like the us in the room, not the 22-year-olds coming into the industry. I think I think if uh, I could speak for Nabil when I say if we had to find a, if we had to build a perfect guest for our podcast in a lab, that perfect guest would be Sarah Keller. Oh, thank uh, you guys. Thank you. And it, it's it's it, it's a great message, and it's it's perfectly in line with with what we're doing, and 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 we appreciate you. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks for inviting me, guys. And obviously, anyone out there, you need a mentor, reach out. LinkedIn. I'm your friend. And uh, and she could probably send a car to pick you up. <laughs> Thank you very much for taking the time, Sarah, joining us. Today. Thank you. This has been great. Nothing lasts forever. Markets will come back. Currencies will rebound. Businesses will go on. And we'll all move on. 
that could happen next week, next month, or next year. I'm confident that those who prepare rather than panic will come out of this stronger. Thank you for joining us. This has been brought to you by Nomad Futurist. Check us online at nomadfuturist.com.